From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. I know this hospital. But I know something about the people entrusted to us, and as long as I'm at Canterbury, they'll come first. The 1963 film The Caretakers, about mental health care, got a special screening for members of Congress at the time, and it made an impression on President Kennedy. The story was based on the Colorado State Hospital in Pueblo, a fact Stephen Trimble learned as he investigated his own family's struggle with mental illness. In the late 50s, his teenage brother was deemed mentally incompetent and sent to Pueblo. Less than 20 years later, he'd be found dead in a guest house with inadequate staffing. Today, Stephen Trimble shares his quest to learn everything he could about a brother he'd lost touch with and about the system that failed him. I cannot donate as much now as I could when I was working, but I still feel it's important to give what I can. I gave because I lived in Colorado for five years now, and I've listened to CPR almost every single day, and I felt like it was time for me to finally step up and support all the wonderful programming. I value and trust this public resource. I have two children, and I want it to continue well into their future. Whatever your reason for giving, thank you. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. For a long time, Stephen Trimble mostly thought of himself as an only child. When Stephen was six, his big brother, Mike, was committed to the state hospital in Pueblo. That was in 1957. For the next 20 years, Mike was in and out of institutions and in and out of his family's life until his death in an underfunded guesthouse in Denver. It's a story of mental illness and inadequate mental health care that Stephen had largely tapped down until recently, when he decided to open a file containing Mike's records. Trimble's new essay is called The Mike File, a story of grief and hope. And Stephen Trimble, welcome to the show. I'm delighted to be here, Ryan. Thank you. And we'll spend the first part of the program telling your family's story and then add some context with psychiatrist Dr. Carl Clark, who leads the Mental Health Center of Denver. He's read your essay as well. And it starts with a scene in a garage. You are six. You are hiding. And what did you witness? That was the memory that started this whole journey for me, Ryan. I was living in my family home in the Denver suburbs, and I have this memory lodged in my brain of just running out to the garage and jamming myself in a corner and listening while my big brother, Mike, caged my mother against the wall and screamed at her. And it was terrifying for a six-year-old, as you can imagine. Uh, He had been becoming more and more aggressive and unpredictable and volcanic as he finished up his last couple of years in special ed middle school. And I was scared of him. And uh, I, I blocked out a lot of the memories, even the good memories from those first few years living together. But that one stuck. You call him your big brother. That was true, not just in age, but in his physicality. I mean, he was quite a large boy, right? That's right. He was almost six feet at 14. And my parents and I were all little people. Obviously, I was little at six, but None of us ever reached 5'8", even in, in, when we were adults. So Mike's 
size really loomed over us. You write, I hide in the garage. Indeed, I hide from Mike's story for a very long time. Why do you think you hid from this story of your own family and its struggle with mental illness? Well, I think it was partly that primal fear. Is, is the word, those are the words of one psychiatrist who talks about mental illness. And of course, the other thing was that my family did not want to talk about Mike. Mike was the son my mother had from a very brief, very abusive first marriage when she was just 20. And Mike was five when my mother married my father. And I came along several years after that. And my mother did not want to talk about that first marriage. She did not want to talk about Mike really all the way through her entire life. And so Mike was off limits and the story was off limits. And so I just kept metaphorically hiding in the garage. So your brother, again, officially your half-brother, had a slew of diagnoses, some of which will sound terribly outdated to us now, uh, but they are, of course, a reflection of their time. What labels did mental health professionals in the late 1950s apply to him? He was slow to learn, and my mother started tutoring him heroically every night uh, at the yellow formica of our kitchen table. And very early on, he was diagnosed as retarded. That was the word that folks used in those days. And my mother, my mother's tutoring got Mike through his first six years of elementary school in Wheat Ridge. And then he went into special ed. And as he headed into adolescence, that description I gave you of his behavior led to his second diagnosis, which was paranoid schizophrenia capable of violence. And that, that's when my, my parents felt they had no choice but to seek commitment to the Colorado State Hospital. There just weren't any other alternatives in those days, especially for, for people who were not wealthy. And so institutionalization was one form of treatment. What, what were the medications at the time? What, what did treatment look like? Well, Mike just barely missed going to the Colorado State Hospital when it was still the just the apocalyptic era of lobotomies and cooling people down to the point where they were almost hypothermic and massive electroshock. You know, we didn't know what we were doing, but we tried things. And then in the mid-50s, the pharmaceutical industry discovered Thorazine. And Thorazine and, and, its, and similar drugs were used to calm people. And so, you know, I don't know a lot about Mike's treatment at the hospital. All those records were destroyed in the 1980s. I have a few fragmentary records that really are just diagnoses. So I don't know exactly what he went through, but he avoided the worst and probably spent years over-medicated. How much thought do you give to what diagnoses and treatments he might receive if he were alive today? Oh, Ryan, I think that's really what I come away from this project thinking most about. Uh, I'm not sure that Mike would be diagnosed with much more than just depression and learning disabilities now. Uh, Every psychologist and every psychiatrist I've talked to has questioned that diagnosis from the 50s when Pretty much anyone who seemed disturbed was called schizophrenic. Uh, maybe he was bipolar. Maybe he, he was on the autism spectrum. You know, we just don't know. 
but I, I'm quite certain that he would have a different diagnosis today and probably one not so severe and probably one more treatable. You know, it's, it's definitely tragic. Schizophrenia, of course, a diagnosis that persists today, but at the time it was something of a catch-all. I think in your book, someone refers to it as a junk diagnosis. Do you want to expound on that? Well, you know, I was not a psychiatrist in the 1950s, but uh, things were things were quite different then. I think it was really hard to find a child psychologist to help families. There was no such thing as family therapy. You know, Mike, Mike went through a series of traumas, uh, that early divorce. My mother then went back to work, and Mike spent time with his grandmother, who was unpredictable and volatile. And then my mother married my father, so there was this stepfather that showed up, and then I showed up to suck up a lot of the energy in the family. And then he started going through these series of diagnoses. So I, I don't know exactly what the psychiatrists were thinking, but they had limited knowledge, much more limited than today. And it makes me think of how many families went through something similar, um, where their child might have been better off with better care. Uh, as we said, you grew up in a Denver suburb. Your parents stayed in Colorado. You moved to Utah. In fact, you joined us from Salt Lake, where your father moved before his death in 2011. And it's around that time that the Mike file emerges. And you describe the Mike file as deathless. Why? My mother saved a few fragmentary medical records. She saved a series of letters that Mike wrote to her in the mid-60s. And she saved the newspaper stories surrounding his very public death in the 1970s. And she put them in a manila envelope and labeled it with her black letters on the outside, Mike. And that was kind of the sum total of Mike's life, Mike's existence. And that envelope circulated around in our filing cabinets in our home. And at one point, my mother tried to throw it away. It was simply too upsetting. It was too emotionally disturbing even to have it in the house. And my dad retrieved that envelope from the garbage and tucked it away. And then years later, when I was married and living in Salt Lake, we would go to visit my folks. And my dad would periodically say, you know, you ought to take that file and stash it away in family history. Mm. And I would forget, you know, forget in quotes. You know, it was too incendiary. And then my dad called me in his 90s one day, very upset, and said he thought he had thrown it away by mistake. But he hadn't. When we cleaned out his files just before he died, there it was. And so we always called it the Mike file, and that was clearly going to be the, the name of this little book. And when my parents had died and Mike had died and all the people that did not want to talk about this story had died, a year later, I spilled the contents across my desk and started reading and started writing. How was it to open the envelope for the first time? What did it feel like? It was cathartic. I was ready to do it. I kind of worked my way up to it. You know, I knew what was in there. It wasn't that I hadn't read it before, but I'd never really grappled with the contents hmm. in detail. And especially those letters from Mike, which really are my one window into who he was. I waited a long time, well into the project. I wanted to know a lot about Mike, everything I could learn from my research 
into the mental health records in Colorado and and uh, everything I learned about our family before I sat down and read them and transcribed them and, and really tried to listen to Mike. Stephen, your brother's relationship with your mother, Isabel, was volatile. He blamed her for sending him away, and the Mike file contains, indeed, some of his letters to her when he was a bit older. You include excerpts in your essay. And I'd like to have you read one of those letters for us now. Sure. Let me give you just a little context, Ryan. Yeah. So Mike spent 10 years in the state hospital system. He was in Pueblo most of that time at the Colorado State Hospital, but spent a couple of years at Ridge State Home and Training School in Wheat Ridge. And he'll reference that in this letter. And after those 10 years, he was mainstreamed, released from the hospital, along with all the other thousands and thousands of people that were mainstreamed out of state hospitals all over the country in the late 60s and then on into the 70s. And he came back to Denver, and we kind of thought he would just sit back down at the table with us. Uh, That was naive, but we imagined that if he'd been released from the hospital, he could rejoin our family at least to some extent. Now he was now in his 20s, and it just didn't work. He became so upset every time he came for dinner, he would storm out. It was really hard to break break into the threesome that my parents and I had created over the years he was gone. Mm. And so he cut off contact and his counselors advised him that was the best thing to do. It was simply too emotionally difficult to be with us. And so he left our family for good at that point, even though we had imagined he might be rejoining it. And after that last Thanksgiving dinner in 1966 when he stormed out. The next summer he sent my mother a series of letters that are just heartrending, and my mother saved those. And this is one of those letters that Mike sent to my mother in the summer of 1967. You see, Mom, these doctors are set so well that they just told you wrong things about me. I'm not fibbing to you. You can say, well, they are professionals from your own bystanding, You see, Mom, they will say anything to make money because a lot of this is just a racket anyway. No, for instance, when you, me, both, they just told you that I was this way and you believed. I was never an MR like everybody thought I was. In fact, some of the ones told from down at the hospital thought I never was in the first place. Did you know why I went to the state home out in your neck of the woods? At the time, not because of them, but because of a misunderstanding of different people under a different administration at the time. I topped everything in that home. I was smarter than all of them. I hope that someday you will realize what I would have been if you wouldn't have messed me up. And that the letters just go back and forth between accusations like that and apologies. And uh, just so much pain, so much pain. Not long after your brother is sent to the state hospital in Pueblo, a former staffer writes a kind of prurient book about the place called The Caretakers. It gets adapted into a more responsible film by the same name, starring Robert Stack and Joan Crawford. Have you ever been attacked by a patient? I have. Have you ever had a patient try to kill you? I say they must be treated as normal human beings entitled to respect and human rights. They can only be handled by the intelligent use of force. Force? You mean destroyed through force? 
I know this hospital. But I know something about the people entrusted to us. And as long as I'm at Canterbury, they'll come first. You've fought every move I've made since I've arrived here. But this time, there's no easy way out. If I don't get the new nurses you promised me, I can't go on with my work. It's as simple as that. The film comes out in 1963. Apparently, President Kennedy sees it. There's a special screening for members of Congress. Kennedy calls for reform of mental health care, which had touched his own family quite famously. What changes did he envision and did they come to pass, Stephen? That uh, that book, The Caretakers, is just such a sketch. You know, it looks a, a little bit like a bodice ripper in its paperback, 75-cent paperback version. And, uh, and yet, uh, Darielle Telfer, who wrote the book, I think really was telling us what it was like to be at the state hospital. So I was really delighted to discover it. When President Kennedy had that brief Camelot-like moment as president, uh, he had this sister, Rosemary, who had been given a lobotomy and really been completely disabled, been, been just you know, destroyed by the mental health system in the, in the 40s and 50s. And his, uh, his family was really intent on pushing him to do something right for people struggling with mental health, health issues. And so he was able to push through a bill that established a system of community health centers the idea was that people would be able to stay much closer to their homes and their families. And if it had been properly funded, it would have been transformative. But we established the community health centers, and then we poured all of these literally hundreds of thousands of people out of the institutions back to their communities. And then funding, funding gradually dried up. And uh, by the time of Ronald Reagan, the community health center system was just destroyed. I'm sure that Carl Clark can talk about this more when we uh, bring him into the conversation. And we've never really fixed things. You know, we still have no good solutions uh, here and there. And I know Denver is one place where we do better. Uh, we do have facilities. We do have treatment. We do have access. But in so many places, the, the people who really struggle with severe mental illness do not have adequate treatment, and they don't have anywhere to go. You made reference to Dr. Carl Clark, who's the head of the Mental Health Center of Denver, and Dr. Clark will join us in just a little bit. He, too, has read your essay, The Mike File. There's a detail about your brother Mike that stood out to me. He often carried a transistor radio. What, what does that reveal about him? Well, he grew up you know, he left home in 1957, and his cherished possession was a, a small portable record player, uh, pink and gray, as I remember. And he would sit in the living room with me and play 45s of Elvis Presley and Bill Haley and the Comets. And the, the binder of those 45s is the one artifact I still have from Mike. So I think he was just a teenager in the 50s, uh, <laughs> getting excited about rock and roll. And he, he held on to that, that love for music and, and the transistor radio when he would come to visit our home, those, for, those few times he did come to visit. And maybe like any rebellious young person, he just wanted to make sure that that was his music, not my parents' music. There was a time when you and your brother were both living on your own in Denver, leading very separate lives. You would catch glimpses of him from time to time. 
um, describe one of those instances and what went through your mind and, and maybe what didn't go through your mind about him? Oh, you know, Ryan, for so many years, you know, my parents wouldn't want to talk about Mike. And Mike was just hovering way out there at the edges of my consciousness. You know, I had a mantra that I repeated when people asked me, oh, I grew up mostly as an only child. I had a brother, a half-brother. He was diagnosed with mental illness and sent off to the state hospital, and now he lives in Denver, and we don't see him. That's all I had to say. But when I was in college, I came back visiting my folks on holidays, and there was one day in about 1970 when I was driving down Broadway, right between the Capitol and the Civic Center, and glanced over at the curb, and there was Mike. You know, he was waiting for a bus. He was part of a group of people with that kind of scowl and that incredible tallness that always seemed defining for me as a relatively short person. And I saw him, and I gripped the wheel, and I wanted to stop, but I couldn't bring myself to stop. I couldn't get over to the curb. And I could have driven around the block, but I did not. And that was another one of those memories that just stuck. You know, I can conjure up exactly what Mike looked like on that curb and what that day felt like. And I'm sure some of it has to do with guilt, but I just didn't have the confidence or the agency or the empathy to stop. And I was a 20-year-old kid, so I give myself a little leeway on that. I'm pleased to hear that because I think having read this book, be very easy for you to be hard on yourself, to be unforgiving or unkind to yourself. How did your family learn of Mike's death, I think at age 33 in 1976? You've alluded already to the fact that it was a, a public uh, situation. It was known. Yes. When Mike had been mainstream back to Denver, he spent almost 10 years living in Denver in halfway houses and boarding houses, state-supported boarding houses. And, you know, we didn't see him. We didn't know a lot about his life. We knew very, very little about his life. My mother would send him spending money and a birthday card, but that was it. And I just kept growing up and living my life. I was off in graduate school in Arizona when I got a call. And what happened was my cousin, who was a teacher in the Jefferson County Public Schools, came to dinner one night in December 1976 at my parents' home and picked up the Denver Post on her way in to the kitchen where my parents were making dinner and glanced at the headline. And the headline was, Death Knocked, But Only Mike Was Listening. And she began reading this story that told her, oh my God, this is a story about Mike's death. Mike, Mike had died in one of those boarding houses and wasn't discovered for several days. And the Post and other Denver media picked up on it as a hook, as an expose of these poorly supervised boarding homes. And so my mother found out about the death of her son from the front page of the Denver Post. And over the next several days, the Post, the Post reporter, Pat McGuire, and the local TV stations covered the story. The TV stations broadcast footage from Mike's room And my mother disappeared into grief and eventually into depression, which she came back out of. But and I came back from from college to be with my family. 
but it was, uh, you know, it, it was the sort of culmination of the tragic story of Mike. And the tragic story, as you say, of mental health care in this country, these community health centers, this idea of deinstitutionalizing folks, but not having the economic backing to support that model. You imagine how Mike's life might have been different if there had been more community support for him. He'd be in his 70s now. And it's a part of the essay that I'd like to have readers experience for themselves. But uh, in it, you invoke the Mental Health Center of Denver, whose president and CEO has read the essay and who will join us after a break. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. Author Stephen Trimble grew up in the Denver area. His new published essay is called The Mike File, a story of grief and hope about his search to understand his brother Mike's short life, specifically Mike's struggle with mental illness and developmental disabilities. If you or someone you know is struggling with mental health, you can reach Colorado Crisis Services by texting TALK to 38255. TALK to 38255. Back in a moment on CPR News and KRCC. Robots, technology, and the economy add in a global pandemic, it means big changes in the workforce. That pandemic has increased by 28% the pace of automation. But just because something can be automated doesn't mean it should be. And what jobs might be the most robot-proof? I'm Avery Lill. Tune into a special Colorado Matters for my conversation with David Brancaccio, host of the Marketplace Morning Report, Thursday on CPR News and KRCC. A coming-of-age story today and a story about coming to terms. Stephen Trimble often thought of himself as an only child, but he had a brother, Mike, who struggled with severe mental illness for almost all of his too short life. In 1957, at the age of 14, Mike was institutionalized and sent from his home in suburban Denver to the state hospital in Pueblo. He'd been declared mentally incompetent. For the next 20 years, Mike was in and out of his family's life, and his brother Stephen confronts that history and his own shortcomings and blind spots in a new published essay titled The Mike File, a story of grief and hope. Stephen remains on the line, and we wanted to put this story into some context with the help of a psychiatrist who read the essay and who's been listening to the conversation thus far. Dr. Carl Clark is president and CEO of the Mental Health Center of Denver, a network of clinics in the metro area. And Dr. Clark, I'm grateful you could join us. Ryan, thank you, and thank you for doing this story. And Stephen, thank you for writing this essay. It's a conversation we don't have often enough. Thank you, Carl. Let me start with an open-ended question, Dr. Clark. What has struck you most about the discussion so far? Well, um, it's the sort of deep emotional pain that people experience when they have a loved one that has a mental illness and, um, and feeling sort of alone and isolated and not really having everything that you need to deal with it. Um, our country has a history of, and not just our country, but the whole world has a history of not knowing what to do when somebody is not well. Hmm. Uh, In the 1800s, 
we put people in these buildings that look just like prisons. In fact, they still exist in our country where that side by side, two buildings where if you were a criminal, you went to one building. And if you weren't acting right, you went to the other building. Um, those were deplorable conditions um, that were fought um, by Dorothea Dix, which actually created our state hospital systems, which were better and yet still not good enough. There's a really important line from Stephen Trimble in this essay. It's short. Our mental health treatment fails our families even today. Do you agree with that, Dr. Clark? I do agree with that. Um, And it's partly because we have these public policies that we hold dear to our hearts that um, interfere with families getting what they need. And what that is, is that uh, we all believe that we have a right to decide what our own treatment is, what we put in our bodies, what we don't put in our bodies, uh, whether we even want treatment or not. Um, and, uh, and that's right. That's a, that's a good thing that people have self-determination about what they're going to do. At the same time, uh, we value privacy um, of our health records. And so what happens is you have somebody who's ill um, and the family member knows that they're ill and that particular person might not want treatment. And that leaves the family not having any tools um, to help their family member. Hmm. And um, when that person is interacting with the healthcare system, um, sometimes they don't, you know, allow their families to be a part of that um, treatment. And they uh, want their um, sort of records kept private. And then it's very hard to understand when somebody is not getting treatment and not doing what would be helpful to them uh, and leaves the families um, in a terrible situation. So I think I hear that that increases the isolation of the person who has mental illness. But are, are you suggesting then that there need to be, what, like greater involuntary commitment laws? I know that has changed after the Aurora Theater shooting. Are you saying that there needs to be a change in privacy policies? So what I'm saying is, is that... Um, the way we hang on to these public policies right now, uh, we're going to continue to have families that feel left out. Um, and there are states that have looked at um, commitment laws in a different way. So in our state, if somebody is dangerous, um, they're either a danger to themselves or other people, or gravely disabled, meaning that if they don't get treatment, um, they'll have very bad outcomes. Mm-hmm. Um that's when we commit people in Colorado. Other states look at this um, more as um, sort of guardianship. So when is a person in their lives making decisions about their health care that are so detrimental that they really need somebody else to have um, the medical uh, power to make those decisions for them? Uh, Colorado has not addressed that issue at all. Hmm. According to our health reporter, John Daly, Colorado just this week becomes one of the first states in the nation to include an annual mental health 
wellness exam in individual and small group health insurance plans. Uh, The move comes as Colorado is in the midst of an unrelenting opioid crisis, a sharp rise in fentanyl overdoses. And I have to think that the pandemic in general has exacerbated things. It has. Um, Ryan, you know, before the pandemic, uh, one out of five people were dealing either with a mental health issue or a substance use disorder. And we know that that has gone up um, during the pandemic. One of the things that um, is true here in Colorado and, and across the country is that we never have put the resources um, into our behavioral health services to really meet the need. Um, in Colorado and the rest of the country, of the people who need help, of the one out of five people who need help, only two out of five are actually accessing help. That means three out of five people are not getting what they need. And you can look at this across the planet. Um, All countries are essentially developing countries when it comes to funding behavioral health. Oh, that's an interesting way to frame it. Uh, One of the questions I had for you is if there is a model that you hold in high esteem that you think Colorado should adopt. Stephen Trimble, what do you you make of the conversation you're hearing here? Well, you know, there's actually a direct line from Mike to the Mental Health Center of Denver uh, in working on this book, I did tons of research about public policy that doesn't appear in the small version of the book that, that Homebound Publications published, but it informed me in between the lines. And I so much wanted Mike's death to lead to some kind of reform. And Mike's death did lead to a series of articles written by uh, that Denver Post reporter that covered his death, Pat McGuire, that he called his Lost Souls series. Hmm that could have been written yesterday over the course of a couple of years. And Pat McGuire told me that Mike's death triggered that series. And then just a couple of years after that in 1980, began this long court battle that Carl would know in great detail uh, that led eventually to the uh, Ruth Goebel homes and enough money to create the Mental Health Center of Denver and start funneling public funds to help with these kinds of treatments. And we haven't been real consistent about all that, but uh, I like to think that that Mike's death led to a certain amount of reform. And people, leaders like Dr. Clark are, are key in making us do better than we would do otherwise. Dr. Clark, as we wrap up, if someone is in mental health crisis or someone Someone loves is in mental health crisis. Uh, I've given the number to Colorado Crisis Services. You can text TALK to 38255, 38255. But what capacity in Colorado is there right now for someone who needs immediate help? Uh, Ryan, thanks for asking. You know, I almost wish we didn't call it a crisis um, Mm. system because people talk themselves out of calling. So I say to people, even if you're just a little bit worried about yourself or a family member, call. Um, There are professional counselors that are available 24-7, and it's easy access. Um, People often talk about the mental health system being 
complicated. And that is true because of uh, the way we fund things. That being said, this is a group of people who can help you find the right place. The word of crisis is built into the organization's name, Colorado Crisis Services. But I so take your point that the bar doesn't have to be that high if you need help. Again, texting TALK to 38255. Stephen Trimble, what would you say to your brother Mike if you had the chance? Oh, my. Uh, I, I would say that I see you, that I now see you as a person. You know, the subtitle of my book is A Story of Grief and Hope. And I really think the hope comes from being visible. We look at people with mental illness. We look at people, homeless people on the streets, you know, talking to CIA agents, and we look away. And the book is really my journey to discover who Mike was and figure out what that meant to me and come to the realization that, yes, indeed, I had a brother and here he was. He was a person. I know now as much as I am ever going to know about him. I hear his voice in those letters. I realize that he was right in those letters when he said that he was overdiagnosed, I'm sure over-medicated, over-institutionalized. He could have led a very different life. And I would love to be able to say to him, you were right. And the world was wrong. And I wish we could have done better. But at that point in the history of our treatment of the mentally ill in America, we probably couldn't have done any better. But we can now. And we still need to do better and better and better. Thank you so much, Stephen. I appreciate it. Oh, you're very welcome. Dr. Clark, thank you. Thanks for doing the story, Ryan. Stephen Trimble, author of The Mike File, a story of grief and hope. He grew up in Denver, now lives in Salt Lake City. Psychiatrist Dr. Carl Clark read the essay with us. He's president and CEO of the Mental Health Center of Denver. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Indigenous slavery was widespread in southern Colorado in the 1800s. That history is the subject of an exhibit at the Fort Garland Museum and Cultural Center in the San Luis Valley. The museum's director, Eric Carpio, told KRCC's Shauna Lewis about the show. In this region, in the San Luis Valley, as well as throughout other parts of southern Colorado and what was New Mexico territory at the time, there was a practice of indigenous peoples being held captive in people's homes across the area. And this was a pretty regular occurrence. It wasn't unusual at the time. The largest number of individuals enslaved were the Diné or Navajo, but there's also a number of uh, Ute individuals, Paiute, and even captives from outside of the, the immediate region. So it was fairly widespread. How did they become enslaved? There were a lot of different ways that a family may have acquired a captive. It could have been through capture, through like a raiding process. There was also captives who were captured and then sold on the market and purchased. The exhibit features large photos of captives. How do the images affect viewers? 
They're really powerful, and particularly as we combine what we see in the images with the stories that we've heard. We've worked with tribal partners as well as a lot of descendants who have traced their lineage back to this history. It's often a story about loss and about erasure and about trying to understand this history, this close connection to their history and their lineage that they feel has been either lost or stolen or erased. And so when we look at the photographs, particularly with young men in these images, often they're dressed in what we would consider like Western clothing, like more Americanized clothing with this suit jackets and collared shirts, short hair. Those images are really powerful. It really is reminiscent of this loss of identity and this forced assimilation. There are also huge photos of long handwritten lists. What are those lists and who wrote them? Those images are reproductions of a census known as the 1865 Indigenous Captive List administered by Lafayette Head. He's the Indian agent for the Ute here in Conejos County. Of course, 1865 is after the Civil War, after the Emancipation Proclamation. Indian agents here in the region at the time were directed to try to understand uh, and document this practice of indigenous captivity. One of the ways in which indigenous enslavement is different than the African and African-American enslavement that we're more familiar with that took place in the South is that indigenous enslavement was never legal in this area. There wasn't a lot of documentation of this practice. A lot of it happened, you know, underground. So the documents that we have in the exhibit are fairly unique in that it really clearly outlines and is proof, really, that this practice exists. So in addition, we also have a copy of a letter that was sent from Lafayette Head. It really comes across as if this is a surprise to him, that he's like surprised by this practice. He's outraged. I believe he says in the letter somewhere that this practice is barbarous and inhumane. But what he doesn't mention is that he has captives in his home that end up not being listed on the census that he submits to the governor, which ultimately ends up in Washington, D.C., so he's also complicit in this practice. Why are so many of the names on the list either Anglo or Spanish? It was common then when an indigenous person would be taken captive and brought into the home that their name would be changed. What did it mean for the people whose names were changed? One of the most striking parts of looking at these documents is that we've got a list of individuals who are listed as captives. Clearly, the names listed are not their given name, that they were probably given by their own family or their own tribe. And so I think that alone is just indicative of that loss that these individuals have experienced firsthand in the moment, but also the loss that is then passed on to their descendants. How are people in the local community responding to the exhibit? not uncommon to hear families who've come through the exhibit talk about the stories that they've heard from parents and grandparents about the possibility of being indigenous or about having an indigenous enslaved great-grandmother or great-grandfather or something like that. Oftentimes that history has been either denied or repressed or hidden. I've heard from several people who've said that this really begins like almost a healing process in the way that they understand their own history and their identity and, and their community. That is Fort Garland Museum Director Eric Carpio speaking with KRCC's Shauna Lewis. The exhibit is Unsilenced Indigenous Enslavement in Southern Colorado.
Cows don't make the best climate decisions. They graze on millions of acres of public land in Colorado. But if you leave the cattle alone, they overgraze. That's bad for the soil and fuels climate change. New technology could help change that by giving cows the sort of collars you find on dogs. CPR's Michael Elizabeth Sackis reports. It's a rainy day on Pat Luark's ranch, north of Eagle. Luark is driving in the mud out to the acres of public land that is cattle graze. He's with Christy Walner, a rangeland specialist with the Bureau of Land Management. They pull over and get out to examine the grass. This grass that you're seeing here is the most cherished grass to the cows, to the elk, to the squirrels. They love this grass. Bunches of this native grass dot the soil, and Luark and Walner are delighted to see it. If we would have got our normal rains like we do usually in July, I see the potential of this grass being stir-pie to the horse. Even with years of back-to-back drought, the grass seems to be improving. Why? Luark and Walner are working together to try out something new. Here's a good example of it. It's like fencing your dog in with no fence. Luark's cows each wear a shock collar. Reception towers placed around the area use GPS to speak to each other and the callers to create virtual fence lines. The company is called Vents, as in virtual fence. Luark can move the fence and his cows using his computer. We got another 640 acres we fenced off that historically been overgrazed. I don't know, the cows just seem to just hammer it. There's not been one cow on it. We're going to go down there and we will see seed heads everywhere. This virtual fence allows Luark to move cattle before they overgraze a spot. That means healthier grass and soil. The Bureau of Land Management is funding the virtual fence experiment with a grant. Christy Walner is the project's manager. Now we can move fences and use ground in a way we never have even thought about. And now with no hard fences, the flow of energy of wildlife can move with their babies across the landscape how they would naturally do it. The idea of moving livestock around to prevent overgrazing isn't new. Ranchers can use portable electric fences to do the same thing. But that's labor-intensive. Wildlife can knock fences down, and some pastures, like on the side of a mountain, are hard to get to. Todd Parker is with the tech startup Vents. In a training video, he shows how the software works. What we're looking at right now is a visualization of a live ranch. The software uses Google Maps to mark out separate pastures. In one spot, there are dozens of little dots. Those are cows. And the pasture they're in has orange lines crossing it to show the location of the virtual fence. And the animals are being managed to graze from the north to the south on this west side. Parker says the less time ranchers spend chasing cows and fixing fences, the more time they can spend managing the health of their animals and the land. When he hears from ranchers who are worried virtual fence will replace them. We like to have a conversation as, look, we're not eliminating the cowboy. We are changing the job. Parker says that extra time to focus on grass health means more dollars for ranchers because of healthier soil. It also means their cows are having less impact on climate change. When cows move as a herd, they trample grass in their urine and manure into the ground. That creates a layer of mulch that helps store moisture and add nutrients to the soil. At the end of the day, the healthy grassland and a healthy root system is sequestering carbon. Regenerative agriculture is considered an important climate solution since it has the potential to help plants take more carbon out of the air and store it in healthy soil. Bobby Gill is with the Savory Institute, a nonprofit in Boulder that works around the globe to regenerate grasslands with the help of livestock. North America used to have 
60 to 75 million bison roaming across it. And they never returned to a piece of land until those grasses had fully recovered. The Savory Institute wants ranchers to get their cows moving to help heal grasslands. Gill says virtual fence could help with that. And what you see is that instead of being a polluter to the environment or causing harm, you see the opposite. And livestock end up being this tool for land regeneration. But Gill doesn't want a virtual fence to mean ranchers spend less time out in the pasture. He says that's what's caused a lot of the damage to grasslands in the first place. I'm Michael Elizabeth Sackis, CPR News. And thanks for spending time with us. Thanks as well to the Colorado Matters team, who are positively electric. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Avery Lill. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. And I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News and KRCC.